and you also don't want to uh, ultimately figure out the, the entirety of your conclusion that you assume you're going to arrive at. Because along the way, uh, that's going to turn into something else. Um, and you don't want to, and you don't want to compromise uh, your your journey towards honesty by um, by constructing your path in such a way that you're guaranteed to get to the place that you th- you think you want to get to. My guest is Mr. Fish, aka Dwayne Booth. He's a political cartoonist whose work has appeared in Harper's, L.A. Times, McSweeney's. Um, he's also the author of the books Go Fish, How to Win, Contempt, and Influence People, uh, Mr. Fish, and Then the World Blew Up. He's the subject of a documentary that I just saw called Cartooning, Cartooning from the Deep End. Why is he on the live drop? This show is about intelligence gathering, processing information. Dwayne talks about being a satirist and the role of a satirist in a democracy, um, the forces that are uh, working on that that have changed it in recent years and um, where he's going from here. Eventually, we get to an interesting, an interesting answer for the question, how to get people to want to know what they don't know. Begin transmission now. How's it going? It's going all right. I was just, I was actually um, uh, so completely focused on like four cartoons that I'm trying to get done. Oh, really? Yeah. And all of a sudden, I was just like, wait a minute, there's some like my bio clock is telling me that I should be doing something else. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 yes. Oh yeah. Did yeah, you get no. the emails I sent? I sent one from my, I don't know, you know, Google, the, you, I, I got one a little crazy starting up Google sites. So I have one for a, a web series I did, which is where I met the director Pablo. And then I have another one for the, so, uh, yeah. What do you want to talk about? <laughs> 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 I was looking over those questions. And I thought, Oh man, we had a, I could have gone a little crazy. Uh, you know, writing down questions to ask, but um, I started looking through. I started looking through your work, and I mean, I I'd known your work as Mr. Fish. I didn't know Dwayne behind it. I I didn't know um, yeah. who you were. But um, yeah, I got your book, Mr. Go Fish, my Mr. Fish here. Oh yeah, uh, this is some great stuff. It's almost like you predicted Donald Trump in some ways, you know. Yeah, I'm not alone in that. <laughs> yeah, and then Mr. Fisher when the world blew up. Yeah, yeah. You know, these are um, these are on my coffee table, and uh, you know, just to impress people, let them know how broad-minded I am. <laughs> smart and caring. Smart, yeah. and smart, and caring. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I guess I guess I wanted to. We can start out with like, what are you what are you working on now? You said you're working on four different um, cartoons. Yeah, I've it, it's been a crazy week as far as work goes um, mm-hmm. because I ha- actually have now I think three books that I have to try to get done by the end of 2019. Um, Take so time. I'm, yeah. yeah bigger projects and I'm trying to work on a podcast with my, with a bunch of people and, and my animated web series, which uh, I just now got enough money to get the uh, animation program that I want to do it in. Mm -hmm. Um, So I've just been really, really exhausted and busy and realized that I haven't done any new cartoons yet this week. Right. Yeah. So I realized I'm like, wow, I I should have an opinion about something. Uh, so I just started to, uh, and this is, this is, this is rare when I do this. Usually I think of what I want to complain about and then I mm-hmm. figure out 
how, how I'm going to render it. Um, but if I find myself, um, as I did just last night and this morning, literally wondering if I will ever think of another cartoon again, right. You know, you just never know when it's just like, Oh, you know, the well is dry. Where do they come from though? I mean, you, you said you had a feeling you needed to write some more cartoons, but, um, I don't know. I got the impression from your work that it comes from something It comes from another place. Yeah. It, I just have to turn it on. And like I said, I've been sort of focusing on, on literary things and uh, it's um, uh, midterm time at Penn where I teach. Mm-hmm. So my mind has been in, in other places. Um, so yeah, so that, that, that's all it was where I should, I really do. I love to draw. I mean, it's my, it, it is a thing. I don't mean to make it seem like now it's time to save the world. Yeah. But do you is, have I, I was reading some of your some of the, the prose sections and some of the essays. You have a really visual way of describing things. I mean, I think there's one essay you write about this girl. You're trying to impress her. You started showing your cartoons at a really young age, and you yeah. were making out. And you described her lips as like live bait. I just kind of yeah. you know, just kind of me sort of viscerally jump back of it. I thought, what a great description. <laughs> do those things? Do they just kind of pop into your? Do they surprise you as well as the? Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, anybody who writes can probably attest to this. Um, I never know what I think and feel about something until I either draw it or I start to try to write it. Right. Uh, and yeah, and I do shock myself with uh, with the the honesty with which I, I typically arrive at with, mm-hmm. with my work. You know, because when you're sitting alone and you're trying to get to the bottom of something, you will tend to be um, honest you know, you're, you're, it's, you're less likely to bullshit yourself through a situation if it's just you you're speaking to. Yeah. So you said you've gotten into, I mean, you're developing some larger projects now. How, how do you, how do you deal with the difference of looking at something? Like you say, you have some books to finish. I mean, that's kind of a different, it's a different creative decision-making process, isn't it? Like looking at something in a big picture, like how do I put together this whole season of a web series or how am I going to structure this entire book? How is that different from when you're kind of in the zone and surprising yourself or is it? Uh, yeah, it's definitely different because you have to have some sort of stamina for longer projects, uh, you know, and you don't want to, um, you don't want to simplify your, the trajectory of your composition, you know, by just focusing on what you think is going to be a, a great series of gags to have in it. Right. Uh, and you also don't want to uh, ultimately figure out the, the entirety of your conclusion that you assume you're going to arrive at. Because along the way, uh, that's going to turn into something else. Um, and, you don't want to, and you don't want to compromise uh, your, your journey towards honesty by, um, by constructing your path in such a way that you're guaranteed to get to the place that you, th- you think you want to get to. Right. If that makes sense. So you even allow your allow allow you to you allow yourself to surprise yourself in that process too. Yeah, it's it's a wandering. I mean, it's just it's it's the same way I would hope um, uh, people would how they how they enter into their day. Yeah. You know, you want you 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 start you going into into your life every single day. You're like, okay, I want to avoid problems. I want to you, you know be the hero of the day. I want to be Is that your first one. one? <laughs> Is that, I want to. Good morning. I'm going to get some coffee and avoid it. problems today. <laughs> yeah, everybody has that instinct that that's how they would like to do it. Yeah. 
Absolutely. You're living in an indifferent universe that's going to not care about what you want, how you want your day to go. Yeah. I was walking into a grocery store a couple of days ago. It was one, it was one of, it's like not Whole Foods, but the other one, 365 and Silver Lake. And it's usually, you know, a lot of young people in there. Yeah. And, um, I walked in the door and this woman, young woman was on her phone and she stopped right in front of me looking at her phone, like something interesting in her phone. It kind of arrested her. And, uh, I, I said, it was a pause there. I don't think she saw me standing right next to her, but I said, are, are you just, are you just going to stand there? And, um, she turned around and she said, my cat just died. Okay. So why don't you just fuck off? <laughs> and, uh, yeah. So you can't always, you know, you don't know what's going on around you. No. And it's funny that you, you can't that. always avoid problems either, I guess. No. And you also aren't every, ever going to, um, have clear vision or the proper insight into how you're moving through your day. Cause mm-hmm. you were just reminding me there's these new kiosks at the uh, train station here in Philadelphia that right. have turnstiles. Um, and it depends on which way you come off of the train platform, which stairwell you go down where you will either go through the kiosk if you know, you've already paid. So it's a free, the free kiosk to get back into the station to go out on the street I ended up going down a stairwell that I didn't know. So yeah. I came already in the station with my earbuds in and walked towards the kiosk and it was locked because it was actually going back onto the train. Right, right. And I was just like, I take my earbud out. I'm just like, what the, f-? and I like see one of the guys standing there and I'm just like, how am I supposed to get through this thing? How am I getting out? You know, cause I was just like, the world is against me. Something's wrong here. Yeah, you don't, you don't expect like a physical obstacle <laughs> right. to stop. You know I mean? I've like, got enough existential things I got to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know I mean? And I he was know. like, are you trying to get back on the train? And I'm like, no. He says, that's on, you're in the station. So then it was just like, then you feel just like a crazy old man. You know, yeah. just, <laughs> you're railing against the world. And then all of a sudden you're just like, oh, I'm actually walking around like without pants on. I don't even know. it. Yeah. Yeah, that's why I shave now. <laughs> when I go out in public, it's yeah, because it, it do, I'm old enough now where it does it, it doesn't it doesn't look intentional. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> it's like oh okay. Yeah, so if I get close enough, it'll be the scent of pee to confirm what I'm looking at. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> sir. The bathrooms are for customers only. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're the subject of a documentary called "Cartooning from the Deep End," and it brought up some questions. A lot. Of, the subject of that was the shift away from political cartoons. I mean, I know there's not as many newspapers, print newspapers, but maybe um, we could talk about that for a little bit. Um, yeah. I think there's several reasons, but I was wondering if you could, uh, you could tell me some of the ones that you think are most significant. Well, the obvious one is, is the, is the death of print media, you know, magazines and newspapers. Uh, um, I guess, what was it? 2000, 2009 2010 uh really there was there was a, a massive die out at that time right uh, you know and it was a financial thing but it was also uh more and more it's um reflective of of something else yeah you know even when i was getting my work published in on the opinion page in the at the la times um more and more, um, the editors started to say, let's be less opinionated on the opinion page, uh, which struck me as very strange because it just started to shift 
Uh, and this is a shift that's gone on for decades, so it's not a new shift. But basically, when you have your the means of communication with the public in general, we're talking about giant uh, media conglomerates, right? Uh, and they're controlled by corporations that have a different um, view of uh, of an audience. It's not an audience; they're consumers. Mm-hmm. So, if you're producing work that is demanding critical thinking. Um, that has the potential to say um, uh, consumerism is bad, corporations are dangerous. Since corporations are the ones bringing that work to the public, they're not going to support it. And they're not going to give you a platform if that is your if that's your mo. Um, so that started to happen more and more, just like it did in, uh, with uh, um, Harper's Magazine. Um, right. I was I was phased out because I wasn't you know, a liberal Democrat. And I was, I, I was unkind to Obama. It didn't fit the brand anymore. Um, so there, there's that, uh, but there's also uh, less and less use of, um, of visual satire in the form of uh, cartooning um, happening. So people are, are more illiterate to that art form. Uh, when you think about it, if you think about the the majority of visual language that people experience every single day, it's advertising. Um, right. So if, if that's what's teaching them how to read and react to imagery, um, and then you show them a piece of, of um, visual satire, a cartoon or some, or, or some social significant commentary in a visual form, it's going to look rude. You know, because it's not considering them as consumers. It's asking them to think rather than simply to react. Um, and that is, uh, that's uncomfortable for people. And like I said, I think they're being conditioned to be illiterate to that form of, of um, activism, engagement, you know, any, anything, any, any, um, any verb you want to use. Run. i noticed you as i was looking through some of your you know some of your stuff because i grew up in i'm 53 maybe i don't know we're probably around the same but i grew up like watching the vietnam war on tv Uh and there was some great you know political cartoons around that time i think my first somehow i don't know how it happened i ended up getting this book of um like Doonesbury cartoons, but, but it was all the ones about the Vietnam war. My first experience of Vietnam war was kind of watching it on TV and then reading Doonesbury. And, um, and it really kind of threw me for a little bit of a loop as a kid. I mean, I was never like a comic book kid. I was more, you know, cracked or mad. (laughs) I couldn't really get into the, the, the comic books, but, um, I kind of meandered off on this question. I guess initially what I wanted to throw in was, uh, yeah, some of these just look like my response to them. I think I've even been conditioned over the years where I was looking at it, like with the one of Trump with the cerebellum coming out of his anus. I'm like, well, that's just not nice. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and, and yeah, I mean, that's a really great example of something that, you know, I'm hard pressed to find any publication that will publish it. Uh, those are the ones I have to self-publish. Um, right. But it's interesting because the parallel that I have to that is if you look at Trump's policies uh, or if you just look at the manner in which he communicates, that to me is is uh, an obscenity that has real 
significant impact on the world, right? Right. That's grotesque to me. Like that's so. I wanted to share like part part of showing the uh, the the drawing the cartoon that you're talking about and getting the reaction of just like, oh my god, that's horrible. Um, that's the reaction you're supposed to have to the stuff that he's really doing. You know, and so I was having that feeling of just like, listen, I'm I'm getting beaten up, and you know, my gag reflex, my existential gag reflex, is on constant repeat. Um, so let me show you what that feels like by showing you something that will, it, you know, engage you in a similar way. Right. Yeah, that's an interesting topic. Like matching that. I mean, who are the, who are the, um, you know, I'm thinking of the German expressionists i guess like around the 1920s or 1930s that were kind of yeah yeah yeah. i mean some of those pictures of these grotesque you know nazis and you know business leaders i mean those those photos were initially designed to think like oh that person has a weird head or they're grotesque or look at them they're just surrounded by prostitutes and drinking and gorging themselves right right those had an effect yeah, and it's what really the, what, what's doing that now. What what is shocking us now? What is it seems even Saturday Night Live. I mean, Alec Baldwin gives a good impersonation of Donald Trump, but it's still pretty much in the house. I mean, in the yeah, fairly and, nice well, house, and, you know. Well, yeah, and 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 that's a great great thing to bring up because, um, and I, I've argued against the the um, the real significance of what people consider contemporary satire and they, they generally bring up Saturday night live as some proof that satire is still alive and well, um, which I don't agree with because as you, as you said, you can look at uh, Alec Baldwin doing um, a Trump impersonation. What is the, what is the ultimate point of that? It's, it's to, to engender laughter, right? So yeah. when you watch that, it's, it's, there's folly involved. It's a, it's a kind of burlesque. So responding to that and laughing at it um, is going to, it's going to cripple your rage. It's going to prevent you from holding on to um, uh, the, the, your danger reflex that will have you politically engage with the system in a way that you're just like, fuck Trump. You know, right. it, it basically. I mean, you, those were initially some of the, some of the criticisms that were laid on, um, I mean, not initially because everybody thought of oh, this is great. Finally, somebody's making fun of the news, but the daily show with Jon Stewart, I mean, he did a lot of great things and getting more people aware of what's going on in the world. But one of those things was, is like, you know, here, here's the news, have a candy bar, laugh yeah. at it. And you've done your, your, your political work for the day. Yeah. And basically it says, you know, that look, you're part of a viewership that is huge and you're all laughing. So you're not alone. Don't feel bad, but you're supposed to feel a little bit bad. You're supposed to, to um, yes, be shown the ridiculousness of politics and the disingenuousness of politicians, uh, but connect it to, um, to, to the poison and the vitriol that they're actually um, throwing into the real world. You know, if you went and you saw Lenny Bruce, you know, back in the day, uh, or if you want to bring it even a little more current, Bill Hicks. Um, yeah, yeah. These are satirists and, um, and commentators that, yes, you would laugh at some of the stuff that they did, but they would point out really atrocious realities that you are supposed to pay attention to and you're supposed to be upset about. You would leave those shows feeling like, yes, you weren't alone, right? Mm-hmm. Which is 
other things we're doing. But you were also just like, wow, you know, I, I'm still a little bit sick to my stomach and I'm still a little bit angry. So if you're sick to your stomach and you're angry, then, and you're living in a democracy that seems to be tipping over in a, in a very bad way, uh, you're more likely to, um, to commit to changing it and, com- and, and commit because you're, up, you're uncomfortable. Right. Mm-hmm. If you're uncomfortable, you want to push the stuff, the shit that is making you uncomfortable away from you. Yeah. I mean, laughter never really put people in the streets. No, no. But what it does is it first, what it does is that it, it, it gives you just enough relief so just that you're not belonging. Yeah. yeah. And that you're not so crippled that you, you um, don't feel that you can be empowered and do something. But you need those tools to just be like, yes, everything is fucked up and, and, and something has got to be done. Well, that was a great interview. It was great talking with you. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, like 15 minutes in, sometimes I'll find like, well, that's a great place to end the interview right there. <laughs> but um, I'm talking with Dwayne Booth, a.k.a. Mr. Fish, a cartoonist. Do you call yourself a political cartoonist or a cartoonist? Uh, I don't call myself either one of those things. What do you call yourself? People say, what do you do? I, I, I sit and stumble around and I, <laughs> I mumble and look at the floor until they find something more interesting <laughs> to think about. Um, right. As I was perusing through some of your work, you also mentioned, God, I would hate that if somebody went through, went through my, you said something about how political cartoons can um, also sort of show, it's sort of like we were just talking about, they can show that politics is not that complicated, that there are some, simple truths that you can kind of express in a cartoon or in a drawing or in a visual. Yeah. And um, I was just wondering, I mean, you know, with the advent of Twitter and I, I don't know, that's a whole other discussion, but you know, 140 characters or 270, whatever they're up to now. Yeah. Do you think that was, do you think you were part of the problem? <laughs> um, it's a good, that's a good question. I don't know that, uh, no, I would, I would, I would say, I would say no, because I think that talking about what I do and what, um, like a good political cartoon does, it's not the oversimplification of the, um, of the, of the, of, of the, infor- the, the content of the information so much as the simplification of how you're supposed to emotionally engage with it. Right. Meaning that if it, it's the same thing as is if you know somebody who is really into sports, if you know a couple of people who are really into sports and are going to argue very, very like full of, uh, you know, real venom about what, which teams are better than which other ones and, you know, whose stats mean what, it's a complicated world, right? And yeah. unless you are in that world, it's going to sound like something that you're not invited to. You know, you're not, you're not smart enough to get involved with that situation. Politics are the same way. Um, so if you can look at politics and you can get some information from uh, cartoonists who have basically said, um, you know, just for example, if a politician is arguing in favor of fracking because it's cleaner than coal, mm-hmm. um, it's really important to understand really what they're saying. <laughs> right. Yeah. Because it's a business conversation. And then it's just like, oh, you know, this is something, okay, it's cleaner than coal because you can't see the pollution as easily because it's under the ground. 
And people have signed non-disclosure agreements about when their water catches on fire in their tap. They're not allowed to really complain about it. <laughs> said that they wouldn't. Right. <laughs> so, so then you can, it, as a cartoonist, you're allowed to get into these areas where, you, just to quote Kurt Vonnegut, who's talked about, uh, he used to talk a lot about, you know, the end of the species uh, happening because we were too um, polite to criticize it. Oh, so, wow. yeah, one of his quotes is that um, um, we could have saved ourselves as a species, but we were too damn cheap, right? So mm-hmm. what that does is it puts it into this equation where it's just like, oh, you know, are, are so many of our de- decisions about how we're going to engage with, you know, how we build our the infrastructure for our energy grids um, and just how we're going to support ourselves as a community – Right. How that is determined is, to, is being determined by uh, economic variables that have nothing to do with the human species. So long winded way to say that cartoonists say, fuck the equation of economics. Where is the human heart in this? You know, what are the ramifications for the human species inside of this? And so that's the simplification that I mean, where it's just like, oh, why get into the weeds trying to talk about, um, you, you know, which version of um, self-annihilation is going to be easier for us to deal with. Mm-hmm. No, it's all, it's all bullshit. It's all, it's, it, it's all terrible. Yeah. I remember, I remember when I was younger reading cartoons or political cartoons and wanting and not understanding them, but wanting to get that bit of a joke out of it, you know, but wanting to get that, wanting to be amused, but not, yeah. under, but not being educated enough or informed enough to understand it. I, I guess we're just not buying in. You do what you weren't doing. You weren't buying into the narrative that was being offered to you. That's why I got into the political cartooning stuff. I didn't want to. I was never. I wasn't like, wow, I love political cartoons. I can't wait to get into this business. Mm-hmm. I was. The last thing I wanted to do was draw. I really just wanted to write and I wanted to pr- perform and do things like that. Um, but this was the '80s, and I was looking through Mother Jones and other magazines, and I was seeing these cartoons that were criticizing the Reagan administration. Um, that were not the argument that I thought people should be having. All of the arguments in so many political cartoons is really one side of the aisle arguing its own virtue by saying that the other side of the, the aisle is, is the problem. Right. You know, and then it's just like, no, it's stop, you know, because that's not, again, it's back to the sports analogy where it's just like you're rah, rah, rahing for your own team. Um, and you're not criticizing how, the structure, the arithmetic of how society has been put together. And that's the difference between the cartoons when you were saying, because we are roughly the same age, uh, when satirical cartoons at one time, uh, particularly in the 50s and then definitely through the 60s, um, the strength of those cartoons was not because that they were just criticizing just the government mismanagement of humanity. It was really thumbing your nose at authority in general. It was saying, fuck you, moment. You know, the world is, is I actually care about how uh, I, I'm engaging with the world. You have all of these rules and these mannerisms that are asking me to repress my sexuality, asking me to repress my outrage with some things that I'm supposed to be quiet because it's impolite to, 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 um, to show real, true anger and emotion. So you just say, fuck you, mom and dad. 
And that's what those cartoons were about. If you look at that error, you're looking at that break where it's just like, yes, authority is the problem. Let's talk honestly about, about um, the commonality of the people and the, and the communalism that we can share if we throw off um, all of these false um, um, mascots and teams that, that we're being mm-hmm. recorded by to belong to. Belong to a little bit of everything. You know, that was the whole point of the 1960s. It was that spiritual search and that self-search and all of those right. things where you could be religious and be like, oh, the radical idea of Jesus in Christianity, Hellraiser, Buddhism here can show me something else too. Mm-hmm. And so you draw on all these things and then you can sort of like make your own, create your own wisdom drawing from other many different sources. And that's the important thing. Yeah, it's, it doesn't seem to be, now that all they all seem to be um, labels as like, a, like we're all these Indiana, Indianapolis, you know, Indy 500 cars. With, <laughs> we all got our stickers, you know, they kind of yeah, tell yeah. us who we are and what we are and here's, here's the race and here we go. Yeah, um, and there's rewards for that. There's rewards for joining the right team who will give you, um, you know, bonuses for being only part of that team. And there's penalties for not doing that. Yeah. I remember I was doing, um, back in a previous life, I was doing stand-up. I think earlier on, I made a joke about, not a previous life, it was probably like three years ago, but I made a joke about Donald Trump. And uh, I went in the back and the guy said, dude, why'd you do that? And I said, what do you mean? He goes, you split your audience in half with your first joke. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought, ah, that's, that's, that's interesting. You know, yeah. I mean, you're yeah. looking at, if you're a businessman, you're looking at it like, Oh wow. You just cut your potential profits in half. Yeah. Right up the bat. And then if you make fun of, then you make you fun of Obama too. Yeah. I don't know. Then you're just, you're, you're getting rid of the other half. And I noticed that on social media as well. People, they, they don't really know what, you know, I'm, I'm not really that vocal on social media, but if I do post something, um, you know, that's kind of against a certain liberal thing or against a Hollywood thing, I'll get all these, you know, I'll get a response from, you know, Trumpers, mm-hmm. right? You get this, you get these weird response, these team responses. You don't get people that are looking for some sort of truth. They're just looking to win. Yeah. I, I don't think people are used to that anymore, you know? And I think that the trick is, is um, like with my cartoons, for example, you look through those books, right? You saw that, that basically, as I, as I was saying Earlier, I really just despise the manifestation of of extreme power, whether it's Democrat or Republican. Right. Um, and I try to reflect, you know, all this stuff that about being a human being. You can be self-effacing. You can be a little bit disgusting. You can be all of these things. Um, and as a result, what I get are notes and face-to-face conversations with people that. <laughs> they're thankful that somebody is as um, free form as me because it gives them permit. They say, you know, that's how, that's, that's how I feel. That's how I am. Um, but over the years I've, I've talked to people who have admitted to seeing some of my stuff as a version of pornography um, just because it is extreme in all these different ways. Um, and so leaving my stuff out on your table all over the place 
you know, you assume that your guest or somebody walking through the room is just going to be like, you know, this person is unhinged. <laughs> you know, just where because- do you stand? Where do you stand? Yeah. Like and everybody then- has to be pushing some flagpole up. And he, pushing and a flagpole up yeah. and never ever get be being given the grace to change your mind about something. You know, so I hope that, that the work that I do, I try to make it. Um, everything is circumstantial. You know, I have different beliefs through the day. I have different commitments to outrage throughout the day. Sometimes I'm really angry about things and I feel hopeless about things. Mm-hmm. I change my opinion about everything. Uh, and then 15 minutes later, it's going to be a little bit different. So I try to hit all of those, those colors, you know, if, if you will. Yeah. But naturally you have to be, you have, so you have to sort of maintain a uh, posture as kind of an outsider. Yes. And as, as a result, I, it's hard for me to, you know, make any real money anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I get it. I get it. Yeah. Um, let's see. I got some other questions for you now that I got you. Why? Here's some I wrote, wrote down. Why? Why are white middle-aged men so angry? Is it because of you and the Simpsons? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I was twelve writing these. <laughs> 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 you know that and yeah that's a really there's a lot of layers to that, that i mean me being a white male who's sometimes angry <laughs> yeah yeah but yeah i know what you're saying because it is it's an, it is an interesting thing there is an interesting phenomenon with that because there are people you know while yes i feel sort of victimized by certain things that i think and how i express them um but it's, it is really a white person's problem, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, I can, I can walk out of the house and I can walk anywhere I want and not feel like, you know, the police aren't going to think I'm suspicious, you know? And there's friends of mine who are just, you know, darker than me who they don't have that experience with the world, mm-hmm. right? So if, if just given the privilege piece of that, yes, there are people who actually are really happy um, that they can cruise through life with that measure of ease um, and being, and, and, and when people who don't have that ease are asking for sympathy or empathy. Um, yes. They feel like that they are, are being asked to give something up in favor of, of, of leveling the playing field, which pisses them off, which is a shame. Yeah. Um, there's another broad question I want to throw at you, though. But how do you get people to know what they don't want to know? You make it. Uh, you get them in with a joke, with humor, mm-hmm. and then when they're reflecting on the humor or they're sharing it with somebody, hopefully the subtext will slowly reveal itself um, and sort of just seep into their soul. My phone is just vibrating and vibrating. <laughs> I'm just going to throw it over here. Um, so it's, it's, it's just a matter of pausing them. I mean, that's where, where do you think? You think in moments of quiet, right? Yeah. And you think most honestly in moments of self-reflection when you're by yourself. So if you can, if you can create a piece of, of art or commentary that's new to somebody and has a, like a crackerjack quality to it because it's extra funny or it's extra upsetting. Um, what that does is 
hopefully that will blow a part of somebody's mind, right? So just imagine your mind is blown, you've got pieces of your mind that now you have to put back where they were, and in the process of reconstructing your thoughts, uh, hopefully with uh, an insight from a piece of art, that is going to be laid in with the other brickwork, and then you become a smarter person. So it's a matter of blowing, blowing somebody's mind and then having them have to reconstruct it and, and repair the damage, <laughs> and hopefully uh, some wisdom will be uh, implanted in the... Yeah, so I guess you're saying it's more like a personal discovery that... I mean, somebody's going to change their mind. They want to feel like they've had some agency in it, right? So, I mean, you, you probably, yeah, yeah. you're more apt to do that than, than, than just hearing some rousing speech from someone. Oh, yeah. I think I've always said, I, I always thought that you, you can only learn what you teach yourself. And that's why I dropped out of college, because I just found it so distracting um, having other people talk to me uh, in an academic setting about, you know, the meaning of life. When I'm like, you know what? I'm 19. I've got some money. Uh, from student loans that I'm not going to give to college. I'm actually just going to use it to just travel around and go to New York and just sleep on people's floors and, and, and be curious in at my own speed, you know, and use the university bookstore and, and, you know, self reveal. Yeah. God, we had such a different path. I went to, I grew up in the eighties, right? I wanted to go to college my um, grandfather had been in World War II. I thought, you know what? I'll go to West Point. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a good idea. They're, everything's free. They'll pay for it, you know? I mean, uh-huh. the chances of a war is, you know, it's, it's going to be – we're all going to go anyway. It's just going to be a big nuclear holocaust. Yeah, Besides, yeah. I mean, also there was – I think like when I was seven or eight, my uncle was drafted for Vietnam, and I was close to him, and I just thought, I just thought horrible that he was going to go by himself. So – I told him I wanted to volunteer. So he took me to his recruiter. Wow. Right? And I was, I was seven years old. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm standing there in like a Marine uniform. My mother had gotten me from Sears, you know, and I remember at the time thinking, God, I hope he doesn't tell me to go, but I, I really have to do this. I really yeah. have to kind of volunteer, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> like I said, come back in 15 years or whatever. But um, I did come well, back. But I, well, that made, makes me think of something that's kind of interesting because my wife's family, uh, the men, her father was in the Marines, her grandfather was a Marine, um, and there was real, there's real respect. It's a real strong, uh, you know, patriarchal, sort of, you know, we are men type scene. Um, yeah. And when I was growing up, my grandfather was also in the Second World War. Um and the difference is, is that my brothers and I, we really wanted to hear him talk, tell us war stories. You know, yeah. he would. They were a kid. It's just like, oh man, you got to tell us. And he would never tell us anything. And I just remember at one point um, when we were, gosh, I was probably seven or eight. Uh, we were in the car with him and we asked him just any story, any, you know, any war story. And he turned to us and he just, he just looked sad. And he said, um, I don't want you to ever think that war is an adventure. I lost a lot of really, really good friends when I was over there. Right. So it was just like, oh, you know, I don't see these in the John Wayne movies. I don't see this feeling of just like, this was traumatic and it was terrible. And he did. He mm-hmm. said it was horrible. It was a horrible, horrible thing. And I wished that it didn't happen. 
you're not used to hearing that from just like, you know, you know, the, this was the war that was, it was necessary. And these were the soldiers that, you know, saved the world from fascism and all this stuff. So to hear it's communicated in such a way that it was just like, Oh, it was a real shit show. And it was really, really depressing. Uh, gave, gave us a pause, you know, because yeah. we trusted our grandfather and, you know, we loved our grandfather. So it was like, Oh, holy shit. You know, now we have to, we've got to grapple with our, our misconception that war is an adventure. Yeah. And my grandmother was also very vocal. She was like really against the Vietnam war because um, my uncle was pretty close to him. He was probably a little young. Um, but, you know, my grandmother didn't want him to go. So she was like real vocal about against the Vietnam war and everything. So yeah, it was a little bit different. Yeah. My house. I did go, I did end up going to the Gulf war. I remember getting there and I was just horrified. I mean, a lot of people, I mean, there are some things that I saw that, that, that were grotesque, absolutely grotesque, yeah. um, you know, from that perspective. But one of the things that really horrified me was getting uh, letters from kids saying, we support you and support what you're doing and dear anonymous soldier, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, and yeah. I, 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 my initial response wasn't like, Oh, that's so sweet. I'm like, I don't know, kids, maybe you better think this through before you completely support us, you know, right. and be, you know, candy and all this kind of stuff. And I remember one of my, this one, she was a couple years ahead of me in high school and she wrote me this long letter about how she, you know, supported me and supported the troops and supported the soldiers. And I think really it was about making up for Vietnam, but I was so furious and I couldn't figure it out. So I write down, I used to journal a lot and I was writing this, I wrote this letter that, um, you know, so you support what we're doing. You support the war. You support the soul. So you're cool with me coming back in a casket with a flag over it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just want to clarify. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh-huh. I don't, we don't need like civilians supporting the war. That was my perspective. I was like, I want people to be complaining about it, questioning it, you know, yeah. writing cartoons. I want there to be some kind of active debate and people realizing, wow, there's some real horrors going going on and this is i mean it's an extension in politics but it's it's yeah. it's when things go really wrong and the shit show starts yeah and, um, well that reminds me it's interesting because i remember um during that war i was watching cnn and uh and and i can't i wish i could find that the footage is nowhere so because i think they got rid of it, but it was a live report and it was showing um you know that murky green screen with the war, you know, right, right. Somebody's yeah. house and the thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's just like Iraq, you know. We're fighting in, you know, freeing Kuwait and everything. And they had, uh, they had on the phone this little Israeli girl, right? I don't even know how they set this up. So they're asking this little Israeli girl um, what she thinks about the war and if she's happy about, you know, America going in. And, and freeing Kuwait and, they, and, you know, beating back Iraq, right? And you could tell that the setup was just like the voice of a child saying, yes, it's wonderful that uh, Israel is also being protected by, by Saddam Hussein. So what she said was, uh, she says, yes, um, I heard uh, an American pilot talking about dropping bombs and talking about how beautiful it was 
when the bombs were exploding that it looked like a Christmas tree. And then she said, I don't think I'll ever understand Americans. Oh she, my God. That's great. Yeah. And that was, it was like, okay. And they like, just, and okay, they, that's cut. We got anything else we can go to? <laughs> yeah. And I was like, that's the most insightful thing that I've ever seen on CNN in a situation like this. I don't think I'll ever understand Americans. Yeah. And it looked beautiful like a Christmas tree. She was so like, genuinely just like, what, what does that mean? Yeah. You know, that, there's a certain sinister nature to it. The fact that, you know, that you can abstract it to the point of, you know, just being, just, just being mesmerized by the wonder of it, but knowing that it is the exact opposite on the ground. It was a really curious thing to sort of try to feed from, I mean, from her perspective. Well, her wondering how a pilot could even make that analogy where it's just like, wow, it's beautiful. Like a Christmas tree. Yeah. Yeah. It was wild. Well, Merry Christmas. Um, <laughs> <laughs> enjoy the holidays. And, yeah. uh, I've been talking with, uh, with Dwayne Booth, AKA um, Mr. Fish. I guess a couple other questions. I wanted to ask you about Patreon and uh, what your experience has been with that so far. I mean, I know you talked about, um, you know, not being, or, you know, being beholden to, to larger business ventures and stuff, but how, how is that, how has that experience worked out? It's, it's been great. I mean, it's, it's saved me. I mean, it's, it? yeah, it's, uh, just getting little bits. I mean, there's people that just give a dollar a month. Right. You know? And that's totally, totally great. I mean, it's, it's really meaningful to me. Um, and it's, um, it's given me the ability to, uh, fund some of these things that I'm I'm trying to get off the ground. Like I said, I just now got the animation soft, software to start this web series. Um, and I'm using Patreon money for that stuff. I mean, I get paid through the university, um, but I'm an adjunct. I only teach one course a semester. Right. Uh, everything else is just freelance. Um, so it's really, yeah, I can't, I can't thank everybody enough. I mean, it's the, and it's the purest form of, of income that you can, you can get, I think. Yeah. And you can, uh, you can donate on Patreon to uh, an important voice in the American debate. It's called clown crack at clowncrack.com. That's your website. Yes. Uh-huh. And, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a link for the, for the Patreon. I'm going to start a Patreon too. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So thank you very much. I guess the other, the other thing was like, what was it like being filmed? You've had, you've been, you've had a name, Mr. Fish, which has sort of preserved a bit of anonymity for you. What was your experience um, being, being filmed day to day in a, in a documentary? It, it's funny because it's not, it was, it was more difficult for my wife. Um, my kids loved it because, you know, they're kids. Of course they, this, you know, the cult of personality is just built into them when they're that age. So any, any opportunity to have a film crew sort of moving through the house all the time, it's just they like, kind of stole the show. They, they did yeah, steal the show. Yeah. Right. Um, but really my experience with like the rest of the world is when I create my cartoons, I already feel like I'm exposing myself. You know, I already feel like that I'm in the presence of the people that I engage with because I do try to treat them like my friends and I do try to be really honest with them and, and engage with them in a purely naked way. Mm-hmm. Um, so when the, the film, the filming started with when Pablo started shooting the documentary, um, I, I've always had this policy where I got, no, I got I've, I've nothing, nothing to hide, you know, 
uh, not because I think I'm great. It's just like, why try? You know, I, I think that many of my favorite artists are, are the, are the people that show their, you know, their, their inequality, you know, they show their bumps, their scratches, their, their less, their, their salacious natures. <laughs> yeah. Know? Um, so it was, it was easy. I mean, and I fill my days with trying to get work done. So having a camera bother, you know, over my shoulder while I'm doing that was, was, was fine. And he shot, I mean, I don't know if you know this, I don't know when you talk to him, but he, he shot like over 90 hours of footage. Yeah. So, I mean, there was a lot and, and, you know, he grew to trust somebody. I, he's, he's a real trustworthy guy. Yeah. I really like that film. Again, that film is, um, cartooning from the deep end and yeah. uh yeah we have a uh it uh through itunes i think december 18th december 18th available on itunes cool yeah. we'll post yeah. it well you know it's really and i'll just say just really quick you know what's really funny about that is pablo just sent me the link where you could pre-order it right uh, but the page is not it's got it right now we're on rotten tomatoes and we're at a hundred percent nice Mystic Agent, that's one better than The Wizard of Oz, if you're trying to figure out what that means. That's but, cool. yeah. Yeah, so, but on the link that he sent me, I saw the tomato meter was like 67%. I was just like, wait a minute, what is what is this? What happened? And the description is for another documentary. So we're trying okay. to, okay, yeah, so they, they put his movie up, but they didn't remove from whatever slot they put it in. They've got a 67% for another documentary where the description is about like war-torn like London or something during the Blitzkrieg or something. Which I'm like, wow, that's an interesting... That I, sounds I, cool. <laughs> I know, I always want to have that description, but if we can just not have the 67%, because that's not what the movie is getting at. Yeah. Yeah, anyway, it's a really cool documentary. Everybody should watch it. And um, that's pretty much it. Thank you very much, uh, Dwayne Booth, for being on the show. Thanks for being on the live drop. Yeah, thanks. Again, anytime. End of transmission. <laughs>